Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello again, and welcome to My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, and in this podcast, I ask my guests to choose five things from their life that they would like to preserve in a time capsule, four things they cherish, and one they would be glad to be rid of, by burying it in the ground and never having to think about it again. My guest in this episode is probably the most prestigious guest we've had on My Time Capsule, out of over 100 guests. She's certainly the only diplomat. Harriet Cross is the British High Commissioner to Trinidad and Tobago, and has been since September 2020. Yes, I can tell you're already feeling really sorry for her. She's been a member of Her Majesty's Diplomatic Service for 23 years, serving as the British Consul General to New England, the Deputy Ambassador in Yemen, where, due to the conflict there, she helped to evacuate the embassy and spent most of her posting in Jeddah in Saudi Arabia. Harriet's other postings include Morocco and New York, and she's also spent a little while in London. Poor thing. Harriet has been an international policy advisor for the UK's National Crime Squad. She worked in international relations at the University of York. She has a master's degree in international relations and a first-class honours degree from Warwick University in politics and French. Mais oui. She's particularly keen in her new role on helping to create more educational opportunities for girls and women and to encourage and expand the ecotourism in Trinidad and Tobago. So... I think it's clear that Her Excellency, Harriet Cross, deserves that title. Something I'm sure you'll agree with even more once you hear the five things she wants to put in her time capsule. How are you? All right. Yes, I'm very well, thank you. You find me in my office, my workplace, by the uh, High Commission. And you know what? I'm literally looking out at a cricket ground. 
So when England comes to play the West Indies, hopefully they will in my time here, I literally can see the ground. Oh, my word, how amazing. And it's sunny. Yeah, it is generally. I mean, it's a little bit cloudy today. It's rainy season, so every afternoon it pours down. But it's about, like, it's about 27 degrees, so it's, you know, I can't complain about the weather. No, that's perfect, isn't it? And are you enjoying it? Yeah, I'm loving it. I really am. Busy? Uh, Yeah, it is busy, although there's that weird kind of COVID kind of block on a lot of things. So it's not half Mm. as busy as it should be you know as a diplomat as you might imagine we do genuinely go out to cocktail parties like three or four times a week and it's genuinely (laughs) the place where we do a lot of business speak to a lot of people you know make those friendships as well that are really important for you want to ask somebody to do something for you Mm. but you've just been chatting to them you know in a very relaxed situation like sort of the week before now none of that is happening so that's the kind of we're learning to do diplomacy in a different way, I suppose, and it's not quite as satisfying. Sort of Zoom diplomacy. Yes. I find Zoom quite relaxing. Some people don't like it at all. I find it very easy to do this. The other person is right there, and you're sort of looking into their eyes. Yes. Even though you're not really. <laughs> Everybody's looking off each other a bit. Yeah. Which actually maybe makes it less threatening. Yeah, that's true. I mean, Zoom one-on-one is great. I think the challenge is when you've got more people in a meeting... It's hard to maintain uh, focus. And then I'm conscious that other people are probably finding it hard to maintain focus as well, which somewhat you can think, God, what are all these people doing who are supposedly listening to this very important thing that I'm telling them? And then when it gets large enough that it spreads onto another page, that whole lot there, they could be pulling faces the lot, you know. I mean, I I suspect they do. (laughs) I'm sure they do. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so we're going to talk as complete strangers, really, which is lovely, I think, because for me, this is a journey of discovery. Yes. So I will be discovering the things that you treasure. Well, four things that you treasure. Yes. And one thing that you'll be glad to get rid of. So let's start with item number one. Okay. Um, so I'm going to start with my Beautiful South t-shirt. So Beautiful South are a band from kind of from Hull, really. Mm. And I've got a T-shirt that says Beautiful South on the back. And then on the front, it says Northern Scum. <laughs> uh, and I must have got this T-shirt when I was about, probably about 15 or 16. Um, still in my drawer to this day. I still wear it to this day. And it's one of those items of clothing that kind of gives me, a, it gives me a lot of comfort because it's a thing that is still in my life after all these years, which is really nice. But also it's kind of, it's very representative for me of this kind of like, I've got a lot of Northern identity identity and a little bit of northern chippiness sometimes as well so that would kind of encompass my northern identity so that's why I would want that in the time capsule and are you from Hull I'm from a small market town called Beverly which is just down the road from Hull like 15-20 minutes so Hull was the place where we went shopping we went to like the nightclubs (laughs) Um, so that was very much a feature of my growing up Hull was a big city for me oh come on dad give me a lift yeah absolutely yeah 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 (laughs) I have got an older sister who's seven years older than me so she she was going to nightclubs uh, obviously 18 perfectly legally I'm not saying I was going when I was 11 but I think because my mum and dad had experienced an older sibling it's that thing where she got told off all the time for like transgressing boundaries but by Mm. the time I was 16 my mum and dad are like well you know Helen was fine when she went to there's a nightclub called Spiders in Hull which was really kind of dark and gothic so that's where we used to go at sort of 16 which was extremely exciting at the time yeah I bet. Yeah. that's often the way though for a second child isn't it or yeah. a younger sibling that actually the parents have already become 
easygoing about their children. Yeah. Doesn't mean that they were wrong the first time round, I think, possibly. Yeah, no, no, it's true. The parents get an education as much as anything else about risk. I mean, a lot of my job actually is about risk identification in lots of different ways, whether it's about keeping British citizens safe or my own team safe or talking about crime and policing and justice. So it's that same thing, I think, for parents, that they're they're really risk averse with the first child. And then they get educated about actually this risk is not the risk we thought it was. And it can be managed in a different way to the way we actually managed it seven years ago. So yeah, I know parents never like to think they're getting educated by their children, but they always are, I think. (laughs) (laughs) So were you a big fan of the beautiful South? Oh, yeah. Yeah? I still am. Do you not really know them? I do know them. Yeah. What's the name of the male lead singer? Oh, Paul Heaton. He's got a beautiful way with words. Mm-hmm. I love songs that tell a story, and a lot of the beautiful South songs tell a story. Yeah, they really do, don't they? Yeah. And also, it's a strange combination, isn't it? His voice and her voice. I yes. Think. And they've had a few different female singers, actually, two main ones. Um, but right. that's kind of quite nice as well, because the second singer didn't actually try and copy the first singer. You know, she's got her own distinct style. So that's kind of, it's nice to see the development of the sound. Well, I'm impressed not only the fact that you've kept it so safely, but also the fact that it still fits. Oh, yeah, it still it still fits. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. There we are. <laughs> OK, well, we will put your Beautiful South T-shirt into the time capsule as item number one. OK, great. OK, so there you are, just outside of Hull in Beverly. Where do you go from there? So I grew up in Beverly, um, and at 18, I went to university at Warwick. So I lived on campus for the first year, and then I lived in Leamington Spa, uh, I went to France for my third year, which was really interesting. I did a year working as a as an intern on a newspaper, a local newspaper. So that was great, really great experience. So you were studying languages, were you? Yeah, I did politics and French. And that was, I think that was probably what kind of, pro- I mean, I think the fact that I chose to do that degree anyway showed that I had a sort of interest in foreign affairs, but it never really mm. developed to any extent that I thought I wanted to be a diplomat. But my time in France, I really enjoyed it. I mean, ups and downs, honestly, completely. Um, but I think that was probably what made me think about joining the foreign office once I got into my final year at university. I was just interested in that journey, how you go from being a New Yorkshire lass yeah. And there you go. It's suddenly, well, you know, High Commissioner to Trinidad and Tobago. I mean, I say <laughs> suddenly. I'm sure it wasn't sudden. But it's impressive. It's an impressive journey. Yeah. And, you know, I handed over my credentials to the president here the other day and I get this beautiful letter that the Queen, Queen Elizabeth, writes for me to say, wow. you know, our trusty and beloved Harriet Victoria Cross, we hereby recommend her to this esteemed position. Beautiful language, probably not changed since like the 14th century. Um, So I hand this over to the president and I was saying, um, my dad grew up in the slums of London. He was um, like they had a one bedroom apartment in actually kind of Seven Sisters Road kind of area, which in the 1940s was a slum area. Rough, yeah. His mum was from Ireland. She was a single mum of five boys. And my dad got actually got sent up north to Hull during the bombing of London, which was kind of ironic because, of course, Hull got bombed as well. Hmm. But my dad got kind of sent away from that life and uh, eventually got adopted by the family that were looking after him when he got evacuated. And my grandmother was a clippy on the buses and she had yeah. cleaning jobs and stuff like that. So my dad's always really kind of like, wow, whatever would she have thought because she's not, not with us anymore. And he only got to know her again when he was in his 30s because he got adopted. So he left that life behind. Hmm. And I think always feels a little bit, guilty about it to a certain extent that he had a different life as a result of that to the life that his brothers had. Yeah, fortuitous. Yeah. But it is extraordinary the journey that can be made in a few generations, isn't it? Yeah. You see it again and again. 
my family are South London dockers. Right. So poorly educated, left school at 14, just worked in the docks. And so, again, my brother working for the Crown Prosecution Service and then onwards. It's an amazing journey, I think. So what was the bridge for your family between the docks and the Crown Prosecution Service? Well, the bridge would have been my father, who went to night school after the war, got himself an education, then moved into law. And rather like me, he learned to speak properly. Yes, you do have a beautiful elocution, I have to say. (laughs) It's all fake. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, we must move on to item number two, find out what it is. Okay, item number two is Ted Duncan who is a teddy bear. I should have brought him with me, really. (laughs) And you know what? I realised how important he was to me when my bags didn't arrive for quite a long time when I got here. So as a diplomat, you send across all your kind of boxes called heavy baggage and you send them on a ship and you kind of never know when your heavy baggage is going to arrive or whether it'll arrive in one piece. But you also have this thing called unaccompanied air freight where the kind of more important things you put in suitcases and they get sent by plane. Mm. Anyway, I will not shame the guilty, but my bags did not arrive for quite some time. (laughs) And I realised what was, so what was I most worried about? This teddy bear, which kind of surprised me, but it was a thing that literally kept me awake at night. Am I going to be able to see him again? But... The background to this is that I was given this teddy bear when I was six years old because I had uh, I had open heart surgery. And so this is kind of a big part of my life uh, yeah. that it has literally always been with me because I was born with a hole in my heart and a, and a heart problem that has kind of been managed the whole time. And, you know, part of me was thinking, should this be the bit that I want to put away and lock away? But actually it isn't because it's one of those things that's kind of made me who I am and has kind of informed my character and all that sort of thing. But Ted Duncan, and Duncan was the name of the surgeon who operated on me when I was six years old. He's kind of, he's like the embodiment of that. And somebody obviously decided in 1980 that every child who had a heart operation in Leeds General Hospital would get one of these little teddy bears. I think we all got the same one. So yeah, Ted Duncan stays with me and um, he's back now. He's back in my bedroom. So that's why he's a very special part of my life because it um, it's the embodiment of all the kind of the literal pain of uh, having a, a heart problem, but also the kind of the resiliency of it as well. Yes, having gone through that trauma. Yes. Coming out the other side, it puts something inside you, as it were, doesn't it? Uh, yes. Yes, sometimes quite literally in terms of the bits, bits and pieces you get put in your heart, yeah. Yeah, I don't really know anything about, well, I avoid all things medical, but the only thing I know about a hole in the heart is that it was one of the great commentary mistakes. There was a Scottish footballer called Asa Hartford, and the commentator said, Asa Hartford there, of course, uh, who has a hole in the heart, although he is a wholehearted player. <laughs> I've never heard a, that before. Have you not? <laughs> no. That's from a World Cup commentary. So, so is that um, where the blood is leaking from one valve? To it's a- actually two things. So, one was like a literal hole between the atria, I suppose, um, mm-hmm. and then separately, I did have a valve that was too narrow, a pulmonary valve that was too narrow. So they had to repair the hole, and then they had to widen the valve as well. So there were two things done. And this was, not, as I say, 1980. It was quite, um, it was advanced at that point in time. Yes, cutting edge. Yes, cutting edge. So, yeah, it did It did the trick. Mm. Um, but I've still, like, partly as a result of that operation in 1980, now actually my valve is too wide. So I've now got a leaking heart valve. Mm. So, yeah, I think I will have to have a valve replacement at some, uh, I've been told that I will have to have one at some point in time. Which, again, now, they can do extraordinarily yes. easily, can't they? It's amazing. They can do keyhole, yeah. 
yeah, yeah. Re- which is really good. I almost spent a night in a hospital once. I had a tiny polyp which had to be removed from my bladder. Oh, that sounds nasty. If I tell you the procedure, <laughs> which involves basically sticking a large metal rod uh, up my gentleman. Yes. Yes, not pleasant. They said, we'll give you anaesthetic. And I said, I really don't like anaesthetic. It takes a long time to recover from general anaesthetic. And I said, is there any other way to do it? So I experienced what I think a lot of women have experienced is I had an epidural. Oh, right. It was unbelievably painful. (laughs) And then, of course, you can't feel anything. And they said, you can't leave the hospital until you can walk. And I staggered around the ward for about two hours, desperately trying to get my legs to work because I wanted to get out before they shut the doors. So I've never spent a night in hospital. Lucky. Yeah, you must have good genes, for one thing, good genes, and you obviously take care of yourself. Well, possibly not. I don't know. I've just been lucky. But do you know the other thing that occurs to me when you tell me about this is I think it's extraordinary when you say that your parents were then more relaxed with you when you were 16 and went off to nightclubs because they must have gone through the awful trauma yeah. of having an ill child, a very ill child at six years old. You know, a lot of people would have been overprotective of you, but they weren't. No, they weren't. They were. They, that, I think they have brought me up very well. But that partly goes back to that point about resiliency. You know, the doctor said, wow, you should bounce back really quickly. Um, so I think it's partly because they saw that I had endured something that was really tough and difficult and that mm. I had managed it and come out the other end. I guess it sort of makes you grow up a little bit more just in terms of responsibility as well. Mm. So I think there's probably an element of that that they thought, wow, if she can do that, she'll be fine in a nightclub, you know, in Hull. She can look after <laughs> yeah, herself. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, so I think there's an element of that for sure. Oh, it's brilliant. You're a bit of a hoarder, aren't you? You've still got your T-shirt. You've still got your teddy bear. Yes, yeah. And I, I, I try, because this is the other thing about being a diplomat. You do have to uplift your life every four years, mm. which is kind of an interesting way to live your life. It does create its own certain sort of dynamics that I think, for one thing, you make friends quite quickly and quite easily in a way, because you have to, mm. because you're just pitching up in a completely new place every time. But it does also mean that I strike that balance between I want to have things with me that are comforting and comfortable because I'm not living in a house that I've lived in for 15 years, you know. But at the same time, you you have to be relatively lightweight. So um, Mm. I threw away a lot of books um, which was really painful for me because you know the thing is you say well everything's digitized now you know why do I need this copy of such and such a book because I will just get it online if I want to read it or I'll just order it again from Amazon and I was really sort of quite brutal when I went out to my last posting and I did a little bit regret it because I do think there's something beautiful and tactile about having an, an old book especially if, if you're talking ones like I've got old like Bronte books you know Wuthering Heights and, and things like that that are really really mm. old and the thought that somebody else who's now dead that 100 years ago was leafing through that book. Again, I think he's yeah. really quite special. Absolutely. I'm not a great hanger on to things. I do have a house full of things that I should have got rid of, but I haven't <laughs> hung on to them because I'm over sentimental about them. But in your life, if you hang on to something, it's because you want to hang on to it. Yes, definitely. But at the same time, you have to say to yourself, I might never see this again. If the ship goes down, if the bags get lost... And you just have to kind of make peace with that. Well, in, you know, in life, I think that sort of this may be the last time, but, you know, that won't stop me enjoying it. Yes. OK, well, into the time capsule. Yes. With your T-shirt goes Edward. Yeah, well, Ted. Ted's very informal. Ted. I would have given him his official term. <laughs> you know, I think if I'm talking to the High Commissioner, I should be calling you Your Excellency, shouldn't I? <laughs> 
in certain situations, yes, I would demand that of my interlocutor, <laughs> but not today. <laughs> not today. Thank goodness for that. <laughs> okay, that's two items we've got in there, Harriet. What, what else have we got for me? Okay, everyone, we now need to back out of the room with our heads slightly bowed for a moment for a quick ad break. We'll be back very soon. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome back. Okay, let's get back to Trinidad. We can but dream. And the lovely Harriet Cross. Okay, so we're moving away now from physical objects because I do not want to be seen as as materialistic in Mm -hmm. any way. So we're going on to musicals. I would like to put musicals into my time capsule. Oh, lovely. Yes, because this is something that gives me a lot of joy. And it sort of crept up on me almost in like the last few years um, that I really do love musicals. <laughs> I don't love every musical. I don't want every musical in there because um, I wouldn't say, you know, just give me a musical, I'm happy. But somebody was asking me about like, for one thing, films that I would watch again, because I'm not a big one for watching films twice or TV programs twice, because I think there's so much out there. There's not enough years in my life to get through everything that I want to watch. Yes. So I don't go back and watch things again. Um, however, so I was saying to somebody, do I tell you what, the ones that I would watch again, I'd watch Grease. I'd watch um, Dirty Dancing. I'd watch Mamma Mia. I'd watch Chicago. And then in, I was in Boston last. That was my post in Boston, Massachusetts. Right. And there was a brilliant theatre called ART, uh, American Reparatory Theatre. Um, and mm. they were brilliant. They put on some brilliant shows. They put on, um, you know, the musical Six, about the six wives of Henry VIII. I don't know it, no. <gasps> Oh, my goodness. Okay, well, I'm really glad that I have brought something new into your life. Yeah. You might be about to tell me you hate musicals, in which case this is not for you. No, I'll admit it now. I love musicals. Oh, okay. Right. I'm so happy we're having this conversation then. You see, this is why the universe has brought us together. <laughs> so it's a really sassy little production with the six wives of Henry VIII saying, you know, traditionally we've just been six wives and that's it and it's all been about Henry. But now we're going to tell you about our real identities and who we are and how 
you know, what our lives were like. But they've got really fantastic little pop songs and each different wife has got a different style. Mm. One of them sings a bit more like Lily Allen, like Anne Boleyn is kind of Lily <laughs> Allen, like super yeah. sassy. <laughs> And they've all got these fantastic outfits on and the dancing. I love dance and choreography as well. And so Six mm. is a perfect example of that. But ART also did one called Jagged Little Pill, which is, um, again, you've maybe heard of that one. Yeah. Um, I thought it was the life story of Alanis Morissette. And I thought, that is not for me. But it is not <laughs> the life story of Alanis Morissette. It's a really interesting story about drug addiction and families. But with, again, really cleverly Alanis Morissette songs woven through it. It goes back to what I was saying about Beautiful South. I love, A, I love stories, songs that tell stories, but I love clever lyrics and clever mm. ways of putting language together as well. And I think you get that quite a lot in, um, in musicals too. Yes, the internal rhymes of some of the lyrics, particularly, I think, as you go back to sort of Irving Berlin and those sort of things. Yeah. Amazing. But sometimes, yeah. you know, his skill with words. Also the brevity of it. Yes, and you know what? This comes back again to my profession. Much as I am a very kind of alternative diplomat in a way, I'm not your stereotypical diplomat. I think that my love of language and stuff, it definitely bleeds into your life as a diplomat because you have to, especially in the olden days when I joined the Foreign Office, you know, uh, over 20 years ago, you know, you do need to write in a beautiful, clear, succinct way that gets across what you're trying to say with as few words as mm -hmm. possible, but giving as much meaning as possible to those words. And it's the same with negotiating. When you are down in the UN negotiating, you need to use language as your tool. Mm. So actually, I do think the personal side and the professional side do blend in really well, because I get a lot of satisfaction out of using words in my professional life. And so that's why I love all these uh, musicals as well. And the clarity of it as well, though, the fact that, you know, you would need to make sure that what you were saying was what was coming across. I mean, if you're in the world of diplomacy and negotiating with people, there's no room for error. That's absolutely correct. And the flip side of that is that sometimes you want to tell somebody something and give them the impression of something without actually using the words to say it. You know, all this kind of with the greatest respect, you know, all these yes. sort of you know, ways in which um, and there's some types of language I get really angry about some terms. So kicking something into the long grass, again, I'm just like, it hurts my brain. Um, and I tell you what, I tell you what, more than anything else, going forward. Oh. Right. If anybody, it's really funny because now sometimes I see myself as one of these really old, crusty old ambassadors, like the ones I used to know, because, you know, a member of my team will send me something and they'll say, um, blah, blah, blah. and going forwards, we will be providing £10,000 worth of funding. And I'm like, <laughs> red pen through that. You know, can you yes. explain to me why, why I would think possibly this wouldn't be happening in the future? And you need to tell me that we're doing it in the future and not in the past. You know, so... <laughs> Well, I'm with you on that completely. And I have to say that musicals for me have been uh, one of the great joys of my career. Not the most successful, never the most successful, but some of the things I've done in musicals have been joyous fun. So tell me what you've done, yeah. All right, I'll go through my CV. I did once do a musical called Radio for the Musical, and I played John Humphreys. I can see you as John Humphreys. There's definitely a John Humphreys vibe, yes. yes. And he's, um, he's got a slight Welshness to him. John Humphreys. And I had a scene with an executive high up in the BBC who was looking to destroy Radio 4, and that was what the musical was about. And I had one of my favourite lines ever, which was, she said to me, yes, you're just a silly little Welshman. I said, don't you dare. Don't you dare. I'm a very proud Welshman. I, my, my father was a proud Welshman before. My father served in the British Army all the way through the Second World War and ended up as a major. 
And after the war, he went straight back down the mines. And she said, well, how strange the change from major to minor. Oh, love it. Yeah, beautiful. And what a great setup. How nice to be the person setting that up. Yes. That's nice. Anyway, there we are, Harriet. That's me rabbiting on about pointless things. Oh, no, I love it. But I'm, I'm going to see if that's... Do you think that might possibly be still available somewhere? Have a look, see if you can find it. It was very yeah. good fun. Anyway, yes, musicals are a joy, and I can't understand anybody who doesn't like them. Although I can sort of see the argument that it's a strange world. People walk on stage, talk to each other, and then they start singing. Yeah. My husband finds it excruciating. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, it takes all sorts. That's all I'll say. It takes all sorts. It does. It does. But for you, Harriet, yeah. I'm definitely putting musicals into the time capsule. Fantastic. Thank you. OK, that's three items. Yes. We've got two more, one that you love and one that you don't love. OK, so um, this might be quite a difficult one to talk about because um, <laughs> I don't <laughs> understand it. I would like to put time into the time capsule. Oh. Yes. Oh, my word. Um, so... One of one of the one of the <laughs> <laughs> we both, we're both sitting here going, how does that work? Yeah, how does, how does it? But that's the thing. Time is like just crazy, and that's what I love about it. I I barely understand it. I mean, genuinely barely understand it. But I spend my time kind of trying to understand it because I find it quite comforting to think that time as we know it is is not really reality at all. It's just um, kind of we just see like a slice of the universe that our brains allow us to understand. And we think of time as this really sort of monolithic, uh, something starts and then something finishes and you grow older from start to finish and then it ends. And I find it very freeing as I attempt to read, you know, quantum physics for idiots books. Um, and the fact there's a lovely <laughs> one, there's a lovely one, again, that I would really recommend an Italian physicist called Carlo Rovelli, who's written a book called The Order of Time. Right. And as an Italian, of course, he talks about poetry and music. And it's really it's a really nicely written book. And it attempts to to talk about how time is is something very different to what you're average understanding of it is and mm. um, that time is relative you know it passes differently depending on what speed you're moving at and there are reasons connected to thermodynamics which I won't go into I obviously I could go into but I won't no, go no, into in any no, detail no, spare me, spare um, me. which means that you can look at the past but you can't look at the future and the point he makes is that um, if you think about heat and um, if you drop an ice cube into a cup of tea the heat is going to dissolve the ice cube. Warm objects move to cold objects, but the coldness doesn't transfer in the same way. Right. But I won't go. In, I won't go into any more details because, as I say, I've got <laughs> I've got the barest of understandings of it. But any time I can get one of these books, and I have to keep reading them because I read them and then I forget them. Mm. So I sit I sit there in bed with my husband and I say, "Oh my god, this amazing thing about probability and how once the, the world ends and there'll be all blackness, but the laws of probability mean like a typewriter could just pop up. Literally, <laughs> this, this is what mathematics tells you that a typewriter could pop up out of nothingness once." you know our world has ended how crazy is that and then I'll explain it to him as to why this is actually you know a real life thing that could actually happen and then I'll totally lose the plot and, and not have any idea about why a typewriter could suddenly <laughs> appear in the darkness but it could for sure yes they told you yes I quite like the concept now this is to do with time I think that everything is slowly becoming less active and there's a theory that the universe is heading towards a situation I think they call it stasis 
where in fact all the atoms stop moving and everything stops moving and it just is a lot of stuff just sitting there with nothing happening. Hmm. And therefore time becomes completely irrelevant. Yeah, I think that is true. Uh, that <laughs> I say this as a as a, a non-accredited physicist, yeah. um, that you're probably right. I seem to remember it was sort of, the idea is that it's about as far away as the beginning of everything. You know? yeah. so from, it's, it's about as far away as a Big Bang. We yeah. get to the point where you get the big nothing. Yeah. And it's that's it's also about disorder, isn't it? Because before the Big Bang, kind of everything was very ordered in the sense that there was just like a pinprick, and then it explodes and it just continues to get more and more disordered as time goes mm. on. And when you get to the end of that disorder, that's when you get to the kind of to the nothingness again. So yeah, then again, there's the theory that you get that explosion and everything moves away from it and grows into this extraordinary size over this unbelievable amount of time because we've given time a definition, yeah. it gets to that point and then actually may well start to come back in again yeah. over the same period of time. Yeah. Which, <laughs> I'm glad you're putting time in here because it's <laughs> really confusing me now. It is. And then it goes back and then it starts again. So, in fact, if that's the case, then time is endless. Yes. That sounds very profound, doesn't it? Yes, doesn't time it? is endless. Yeah. Time is timeless. All I know is we're not. No, no. And that's partly why I like it, because it kind of puts your worries and anxieties into some sort of perspective when you think, hey, yeah. when you just think about the universe and how massive it is and how um, kind of tiny, tiny, tiny microscopic we are, mm. but also how amazing it is that we're living here consciously on this planet is, is just very, it's very exciting as well. The awareness of it is extraordinary, isn't it? Yeah. There is all this out there. And most of it is completely unaware of the fact that it's part of it. It's just there. Yes. It's just doing what it does in that space because that's physics. Yes. When you think we're made up of the same molecules as a piece of rock, mm -hmm. they're just configured in different ways. Um, and yet a rock is not doing um, its astrophysics PhD. No. No. It's not thinking, at least as far as we know. As far as we know. <laughs> Well, I'm not sure that um, I've necessarily kept us on to time, but in my head, it, it sort of, oh, I wish I understood it. I wish I were more intelligent. I need to go back and watch Interstellar now again, because that was some, something that kind of inspired my, like, I don't, like, <laughs> I don't understand what's going on. So I had to, I had to read up on it. Well, the great thing is if it's in there, I mean, it's all time. If we're putting time in, then it's all time. Yeah. You can go and look at it. Yeah, it's because it's almost like a 3D object. And at that point, like this fabric is fabric, space-time fabric. It becomes a thing. Oh, quite exciting. That's, a, <laughs> that's an absolutely fantastic thing to put in the time capsule. Time <laughs> itself. Right, OK, so we've got one final item. Harriet, what's it going to be? Yes, so this was a really hard decision, and it was a toss-up between mosquitoes which are making my life a misery uh, at the moment, <laughs> and skiing, which has made my life a misery in the past. And I'm going to go for skiing because, you know, I'm sure, again, somebody can write into the show and explain why mosquitoes are, you know, doing a useful thing in the world, because they might well be. I'm sure they are. They must be a great source of food, I would have thought, for all sorts That's of animals. That's true, so. yes. So I'm glad you've gone for skiing because... Okay. Uh, 
I may be agreeing with you on this one. <laughs> well, yes. Uh, and so I have tried to like skiing. I've made the effort. I have been skiing. I have attempted to learn how to ski. And I have participated in skiing holidays with my heart in the right place. But if you, you know, when I'm thinking about things that I enjoy and things that I've got great memories of, I've only got kind of bad, awkward, painful memories of skiing. <laughs> And it's partly contrasting that to people who like skiing, talking about skiing in this kind of evangelical kind of way that uh, I find kind of quite irritating. So uh, skiing can be put firmly in the box and put a lid on and never to be seen again, as far as I'm concerned. It is painful, skiing. It's uncomfortable, isn't it? It's cold. If you don't like the cold, yeah. why would you want to do it? I mean, I can see the thrill of shooting down a hill, but that nearly always for me, ended in um, in falling down a hill. Yeah, falling down a hill, getting blisters because you're wearing these sort of plastic shoes that don't really fit properly, boots. Getting stuck in chairlifts, that has happened to me too. <laughs> um, dropping your ski pole when you're on the chairlift. Also, like, engaging with random people wearing kind of neon-coloured ski hats. That sort of thing, again, is also <laughs> like, oh, you know, things are painful enough as it is, and now I have to chit-chat to somebody on a chairlift. Yes. Yeah. The thing I remember about skiing that I really couldn't cope with when I first did it was the fact that they didn't have a proper queuing system. Everything was funnels. So you started with a wide entrance, and it got narrower and narrower, and you basically got down to one person going through a gap. And I could never get through it. <laughs> I think I stood in one of them for most of an afternoon once trying to get to the ski lift. Because you were being too polite, do you think? Were you being too British? I think I probably was, yes. That can be a problem for, <laughs> for the Brits. <laughs> How diplomatic uh, of you. <laughs> uh, if I were to go skiing, so what about this as an idea? You go on a skiing holiday, but you don't ski. Mm. So you sit by a fire and read a book, and then you join someone for lunch. And then when they come back having skied... <laughs> you go out and go drinking. Yes. Um, I think one of the challenges is um, because then the skiers come back all smug and you have to be very strong <laughs> in your own you know, defence of the value of your afternoon, which somehow the fact that they've been going up and down a blooming hill is supposedly <laughs> being seen as valuable, which clearly isn't. But uh, I think that would be, that's what I would be finding challenging. All, all the talk of, oh yeah, this hill and that hill. And I know it makes me sound really grumpy and unsociable. No, no, not to me it doesn't. It makes you sound incredible incredibly sensible. Mm. I'm really putting my cards on the table here. I took my son once when he was 14. He wanted to go snowboarding. Oh, yeah. And uh, we went to Scotland, to Fort William, up to the top of the mountain there. And uh, it was just ice. Ooh. And he tried it for about three hours. It was no good at all. <laughs> and uh, after about two days, we, we just decided we'd go sightseeing. Yeah. We didn't do any more skiing. Well, that was nice that you had that. I mean, that is the thing that it's true to say that ski resorts are often in beautiful parts of the world. So you, mm -hmm. you do have some beautiful mountain scenery and you can turn it into a sightseeing holiday should you need to do so. Mm. Um, but I can quite happily watch people skiing and snowboarding and stuff on in terms of an Olympic sport. It's quite relaxing. I think it's quite <laughs> mesmerising yeah. in a way. Well, they're good at it, though. That's the thing, isn't it? They, yes. They rarely fall over. Although sometimes, because there are some sports when you're just waiting for the for the fall or for the crash to happen. <laughs> and I guess skiing's kind of one of those as well, isn't it? Gymnastics is a bit like that. You, know, you kind of watch it through your hands waiting for some sort of tumble, um, <laughs> which is part of the fun of it as an observer, I have to say. Yes. Again, that makes me sound really misanthropic and 
sorry, this is not ending well, is it, in terms of my character? (laughs) (laughs) People will listen to this and go, oh, no, we've got to negotiate with this woman next week. It's going to be big trouble. Thankfully, no skiing. No skiing in Trinidad and Tobago. So (laughs) I have not offended any skiers in my constituency. No, and if you're going to go to the right place to avoid skiing, that would be it, wouldn't it? Although somebody did point out to me the Jamaican bobsleigh team the other day and said, you know, don't don't discount the Caribbean from the winter sports, which is true. No, true, which they do on rollers, don't they? Yes. It's absolutely brilliant. They're world standard. Yeah. Amazing. Oh, well, Harriet, I'm going to put skiing deep, deep inside your time capsule. Brilliant. And get rid of it from your life. It's gone. (laughs) You'll never have to ski again. Fantastic. I mean, I'd kind of made that decision anyway, but it's good to know (laughs) that it it won't physically be possible to do anymore, which is good. No, I'm sorry. Even if you fancied a bit of apres ski, no, that's gone. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Harriet, it's been really lovely to talk to you and to get to know you. Really nice to talk to you too. Will you be coming over to uh, Trinidad and Tobago once travel opens up? If only I could find some cheap accommodation. It's tough. You need friends in high places is what you need. No, that's no good for me. (laughs) (laughs) I've never had a friend in a high place. (laughs) Hey, I've seen the guests on this show. I know you have friends in high places. (laughs) Well, uh, enjoy your time there. Enjoy your four years. Who wouldn't? Thank you. And I hope it's enormously successful. I look forward to seeing you one day in the flesh. Absolutely. You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my guest, Her Excellent Excellency, Harriet Cross. You can subscribe to this podcast on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. Please do leave a small review if you can, and maybe rate us. Highly would be nice. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram or Twitter and you can stream the theme tune written by Pass the Peas Music on Spotify. This has been a cast-off production produced by John Fenton Stevens. Now, if you're listening to this around the time that it was actually released, good luck with the roadmap out of lockdown. Or, as the brilliant Death of Buckley on Twitter put it, the road to Damascus. Brilliant. Keep well. Bye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.